Hello and welcome to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. This episode features a conversation with Sarah Smarsh, a journalist who has written on class, politics and policy for The New Yorker, The Guardian, Harper's Online and many other publications. She discussed media coverage of class in the US in the wake of the 2016 election. The conversation was moderated by Shorenstein Center director Nico Mealy. Okay, time is now. Welcome to the Shorenstein Center Speaking Series. My name is Nico Mealy, and I'm the director here at the Shorenstein Center. I have an incredible guest today to close the semester. I am absolutely thrilled when I think back on this academic year and our speakers. Uh, one of our very first speakers was Molly Ball, who writes for The Atlantic, who talked about the beautiful enthusiasm of the Trump voter. Uh, we also had Patrick Ruffini, a Republican uh, pollster who did the math and made the case in uh, late September that um, that uh, uh, white working class voters could uh, carry the election for Donald Trump. Uh, uh, in full disclosure, I, I smiled at him and said, that's all very nice, but can't possibly happen. Uh, and uh, we also had Joanne Reed talking about race in American politics. And uh, that was also before the election and fairly grim. Uh, but one thing we really haven't talked about is class and its role in American politics and in our current, uh, our current political dynamic. And I have in part struggled to think about how to talk about that. In some ways, class is like the third rail of American political discourse. Uh, I recall some years ago seeing a, a Gallup or Pew study that people making $20,000 a year all the way up to $500,000 a year all self-identified as middle class. Uh, you know, I mean, class is, is, a, is, is, a, is a dangerous uh, American part of the American myth or classlessness, perhaps we should say. And as we've been seeing all kinds of stuff, uh, the off-quoted hillbilly elegies by J.D. Vance and the kind of gushing uh, gushing is sounds more positive than it is. The um, the media coverage of the white working class voter and the Trump voter. We have Helen, who's been talking about the Brexit voter. Uh, we've heard a lot of a lot of talk on this front, but I've kind of struggled myself with it. That uh, I will be frank, I have a relatively limited experience of uh, of working class in America. Not only that, I have zero experience really of the rural. Of rural America, but nevertheless, some of these narratives seemed a little too pat, a little too familiar, and I was kind of struggling with it because, on the one hand, you want to believe what you're reading, but on the other hand, it doesn't it seems a little too neat and easy. And that is when I ran into Sarah, Sarah Smarsh. She and I were on a radio show together, and I just wanted to shut up and listen to her. And then I went and read um, almost everything I could find that she'd written, and found her to be an exceptional and compelling writer who speaks eloquently and incredibly smartly and carefully about class in America and race and its impact on our politics. She is a journalist. She has a book that will be out next year from Scribner about the American working poor and her own upbringing in rural Kansas. She has many, many essays she's written uh, for The New Yorker, for Harper's, for The Guardian, Guernica, Long Reads, and many others. Uh, including uh, writing about music and career of Dolly Parton for No Depression, the eminent publication on American country music. 
two of her essays have been notable as among America's best essays. And for all of you public radio fans, she is a columnist for On Being with uh, uh, Krista Tippett. It's a delight to have her here today uh, to help us unpack and maybe even reject this easy narrative about poor white people and what's happening in American politics. And not only that, but I learned this morning she is from the 4th Congressional District in Kansas that had their special election last week, a district that overwhelmingly went for uh, Republicans and Donald Trump year over year, and yet a, a veritable socialist almost won last week. <laughs> Uh, which speaks to some of the complexities in American class and politics. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you. Thanks. So I want to start by asking you uh, about the, you, I'm going to just quote from an essay you had in The Guardian talking about uh, the, way, the way American media talks about the white working class in America, and essentially you say it's with derision. Quote, such derision is so pervasive that it's often imperceptible to the economically privileged. Those who write, discuss, and publish newspapers, books, magazines, I'll add television shows, with best intentions, sometimes offend with obliviousness. T t tell us a little bit more about that. Uh, well, I guess that my awareness of that um, particular point comes from my own life. Uh, you know, I, have, I grew up in a farming community. I'm a fifth generation Kansas farm girl. Um, and some of my family were in Wichita working on factory assembly lines. And um, so I am a native of the so-called white working class and in particular the rural faction of that. And, uh, and I made my way into this um, realm of uh, discourse and um, pro professional class where uh, I have always been aware of myself as a sort of economic other. Which is some, you know, that's a sort of otherness that can be invisible. Um, and so for that reason, um, I, am, I think of myself as having a kind of, kind of dual citizenship in class terms. And when I mention in, in, in the, the quote that Nico just read that a, a sense of um, obliviousness that, that we might in class terms, I always hate to draw any kind of parallel to any sort of any other otherness like race or sexual orientation, but, but I think we might find some usefulness in this analogy that, um, that classism can be invisible to the economic economically privileged in a way that is not unlike how racism could be invisible to a, a white person um, in a country that is whiteness and wealth privileged so um, so that's where my uh, kind of existing in both of those realms gives me a sensitivity on both sides in that way you said just now you said the so-called white working class what talk to us about that about your issue with that labeling or that identity yeah well for one thing I think that you know that that term was created by uh, middle and upper middle class um, uh, culture that that needed to somehow distinguish and I and and note that one can be simultaneously white and 
economically disenfranchised in this country. So that's a that's a, a level of nuance of discussion that is the that America is just now reckoning with that you can at once have the undeniable privilege of white skin regardless of what class you inhabit um, and also economic struggle and um, I think our the way that we discuss race and class ha has often become too so pat and reductive that 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 is was was a, a new uh, reckoning for a lot of people in 2016 that fact um, whereas for the folks that that grew up that way like myself is it isn't news and and we never you know as someone growing up working the wheat fields in the summertime and helping my dad build houses we didn't think of ourselves as you know, we don't walk around self-identifying as the white working class. You know, we're just, we're, I don't know um, what we thought we were. We were people. Um, <laughs> and so it's been, it's been kind of psychologically distressing to me, actually, to see suddenly that word, as I'm no doubt it is for many other groups um, that have their own labels and terms put on them, um, it has been distressing for me to see that, first of all, suddenly a fixation and a, and a concern about a people that I know and love as human beings um, in, a, in a way that is only in reductive political frameworks. And, and second, to have that term become shorthand for um, a type of voter or a type of person or bigotry even or a certain bent that actually does not represent the people that I know. And so uh, talk to us then a little bit about the political diversity of the white working class. You, you've, made, you've made this argument in a few different essays and publications about that, you know, that there is something reductionist about saying, well, a bunch of poor white people voted for Donald Trump because they were racist. Yeah. Well, there are a couple points about that. One is um, the, the Trump train was a white phenomenon, not a poor white phenomenon. That's right. At every economic level, um, white people, including just almost by the same margin, college-educated white people, came out for the for Trump at the same rate. I don't see any news stories or media narratives examining the great mystery of why uh, middle-class suburban white men with golf clubs in tidy garages voted for him. But there are a lot of obsessive. <laughs> reports going on about why coal country did you know what I mean and so I can I have some theories on why that might be is that for middle and upper class mostly white media to um, uh, have this group that feels foreign to them and s safely apart from them ie uh, the working class or poor white it, that's a that's an easy scapegoat where um, like their relatives in Westchester might be a little harder thing to face um, so that's point one. And another thing is that on, in terms of the reality of the, the, the white working class not being a political monolith, um, you know, I, I was raised by mostly apolitical people who are largely dis disconnected and disenfranchised from political discourse and activism and the system. Um, and so, uh, you know, they're, they're not um, politicized politicized people that, that I grew up with, and I think that that's a, a large part of what we, in clunky terms, call Red America. But, um, but, but for those who, when they do come out and vote, I had a, you know, my, my grandma is, um, she's in her 70s, and she 
um, caucused for, it's the first time she's ever voted in a primary in, in Kansas. She's a working class Kansas woman, um, caucused for Bernie Sanders and then voted for Hillary Clinton. Um, most of the women I know, by the way, the working class isn't just men wearing tool belts. Um, most of the women that I know in those communities um, did not vote for uh, for Trump, they voted. There, there's a real strong progressive history, actually, in Kansas and in much of the Midwest. If you if you take a longer view than short-term American political memory, and there's still um, there's still some of that stronghold there. More people caucused for Bernie Sanders in Kansas than they did for Donald Trump, and I bet you've never read that statistic in the news. That is a fact. So, um, so I think that really in 2016, I wasn't surprised. I was disheartened, like I imagine most people in this room, by the outcome of the general election. I, I actually was one of the handful that wasn't surprised, and it's because that same um, the the same sort of energy and vitality that was manifested in a negative way as conservative populism for Trump um, also existed on the left, even in places like Kansas and the Rust Belt. Um, and they were they were Sanders supporters. Um, and I don't know that they that they even showed up on November 8th. Hmm. You know, I want to pull one thread there when you were talking about, uh, you know, the difficulties that uh, the media that the media has become more and more elite in their backgrounds and their education. I mean, earlier in January, we had a guest here, Jerry Baker, editor of the Wall Street Journal, who talked about when he was coming up in newsrooms, they were they were working class places newsrooms mm. were, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And that that is, we've had an explosion of elite degrees in journalism and, uh, and, and kind of a, a rapid professionalization of the news media that's been exacerbated by kind of the economic collapse of newspapers in the middle of the country that, you know, m more than a quarter of all reporting jobs are in New York, D.C. or Los Angeles. Um, and so uh, that's made it harder to actually see clearly, in a sense, the realities of America. Um, and kind of buried in this is also some assumptions about race. And in a piece you wrote, you quoted Lorraine Barry saying that, quote, the story remains that only the ignorant would be racist. Apparently, racism disappears with education. And I wondered if you could just talk about that relationship between kind of race and class in American politics and how that influences part of this, the, the, the narrative that's, that, that, that we're being fed about Trump voters. Yeah, well, I think um, the first off, I, I went to graduate school at Columbia, and so um, I, this kind of dual citizenship class-wise, I talk about how I have experience on Ivy League campus. And, um, you know, in that setting, there is, um, uh, what, what I could see was there were a lot of people, a lot of white people who had benefited from their whiteness over a course of generations to greater financial returns than my family had. And that doesn't, in my mind, uh, allow them any sort of moral superiority. If a trust fund paid their way, that um, if you trace it back a few generations, is on the backs of people of color. So while that might be, you know, that's, um, 
that's a, a way of framing it that is a sort with a sort of level of history and big picture that that might be expanding beyond what beyond your question. But even right here in this moment, in terms of the kind of beliefs that people are holding in their own lives, um, yeah, I. I personally think that racism just presents differently in different <coughs> classes among white people. So um, I, uh, I was talking with um, Farai this morning about how my dad is a construction worker and he's often the only white person on his construction crew and he'll get sent on the road and he gets a little per diem to stay in a cheap motel for a night while he's building an Arby's in rural Louisiana or something and, um, and he'll like split a motel room with a kid from the Philippines on his construction crew to there there is a you know when I hear discussion separating the white working class from people of color who are also workers who, who are not getting the same attention and and I take issue with that on a number of levels um, but I just think that it's that's a that's a symptom of discourse and the privilege of being in a place where we're discussing it rather than experiencing it because on the ground there there often is a, a level of integration in in human lives um, that that's really missed by those sort of frameworks. Mm -hmm. What what surprised you most about uh, about this election? You said you weren't surprised that Donald Trump was elected, but what surprised you about about this? Well, I guess I am still sort of in a state of shock that, that you know, who is our president? It's not, I wasn't surprised that he, <laughs> I wasn't surprised that he beat Hillary Clinton. Um, I am, I, I am going to hold on though to my outrage and shock that, he, that he, a person like him and that he would end up as president of the United States. So I would say that that's, that was surprising to me, but the, the, <coughs> as a fact, the, outcome of that particular election didn't surprise me. You know, something you said earlier uh, about your your family not really, when you're growing up, not really having political context or political language uh, reminded me of a few weeks ago we had Arlie Hothschild here, right? I mean, UC Berkeley professor, <laughs> like if you wanted, when they talk about San Francisco liberals, man, arguably Arlie's exactly who is from Central Casting. And um, she wrote this book, Strangers in Their Own Land, where she is a sociologist, went and spent years, five years in Louisiana with some really, uh, with a lot of people, but really tried to build some relationships and understand a people wholly different from her own community. And one of her observations when she spoke here was that that there isn't a political language, actually, which makes it very hard to have political discussions. And she brought that up in the context of um, a discussion about, um, uh, you know, a feeling that um, that I think is common in uh, in Cambridge, <laughs> that uh, that 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 poor white people and rural white people vote against their economic self-interest, and that that is like unimaginable in some sense, right? And I wondered how you think about that dynamic and. Um, and specifically also the role religion plays in that to some extent, because one of Arlie's feelings was that in a politi in a, in an area with no language for politics, religion took on that space. Mm. Well, the first part of your question, I think I, I haven't read Arlie's book yet. Um, in a handful of interviews I did, I feel excited to read it and heartened by the approach that was taken that uh, that often 
um, kind of sets off a red alarm for me. Uh, As you say, someone from a a coastal area kind of coming in in a potentially problematic way, it it seems like it was well handled, and I'm I'm looking forward to reading that. But I think that that observation is right on, that the the disconnect um, between the the way that we discuss lives and politics is... um, is incredibly problematic. Um, as far as uh, the how religion potentially fills in that hole, um, you know, I don't know. I I mean, I was raised in a kind of rural German Catholic community, and for us, religion and politics didn't intersect at all. I find that that. Um, that tends to be more of a feature maybe of the American South, at least my understanding, Um, which of course is, that's another thing I might mention is that I think a lot of times when we, um, when we discuss red versus blue, the, I somehow, the South and red states and all these things get uh, mixed up into, and and white people maybe is all kind of lumped into this one category where they're also, you know, rural rural Kansas was a place that was so far removed from politics that I'm, are, they're just, I think the, the real divide in this country right now and the one that we should be working on if we want to um, hold this society together is not about red versus blue um, and it's not about Republican versus Democrat or even liberal versus conservative. It's about the disconnect between um, the way we discuss politics and what is happening in people's lives on the ground. And um, President Obama had a wonderful interview with the author um, Marilyn Robinson about a year ago in the New York Review of Books. And they, she's, of course, a, she's an author and is an English professor in Iowa. And he was in Iowa chatting with her. And he was reflecting some on his Kansas roots. His mother is a, um, was from Wichita, from my area. And um, one of the things that struck out, that stuck out to me in the interview was their discussion of, he said, you know, she said, how do you feel about this sort of um, troubling thing that's happening in America right now? And he said, when I was out on the campaign trail and I was going all over this country into, you know, the supposedly most backwards, horrific red counties, um, they welcomed him and he connected with human beings. And when he sat down and had discussions with them, it it didn't at all, what he was seeing reported did not reflect his experience there. And, And I think, and he was trying to reconcile, I think he actually said there's there's a, a, a gap between how we discuss and how things happen, how they look. And, and I think there's some class inherent to that, too. Of course, there's a term for it, chattering class. Um, but uh, I think that that's the real divide in this country. As far as the how religion comes in to fill in as a sort of vernacular, that wasn't my personal experience. I don't think I can yeah. speak to that. Well, what was your experience then? What, I mean, how did you understand your family's mm. kind of engagement? If religion didn't fill that space, what did? Yeah. Uh, you know, I guess there was a, a real sense of, um, when I was a little kid, I my heroes were female TV anchors in Wichita. So we had like three channels. We didn't have cable. I mean, I was came of age in the 90s and we didn't have cable even then. It's a 
my technological marker is very much a class issue, but um, so we had three three channels, and I. Um, you know, would watch the five, the five or six o'clock and ten o'clock news every night, and there are these women in Wichita with shoulder pads that were um, like talking about what was happening in our state, but also some national news. And I'd watch the the nightly news from Rockefeller Center or whatever. And um, so, but to me, even those people in Wichita felt like uh, just this is also a pre-internet moment, at least among my people and so it was there it just felt like there was um this other almost place where people had those sorts of conversations and because I was a bookish kid I was learning those words and coming into that sort of awareness of language and discourse um so for me I kind of built a bridge of connection in a very private and personal way but I can't say you know as far as the the my community at large it it might it might as well be a different planet there was no you know to say then what comes in to fill there was is just every day was about survival and politics and political active activism and momentum and even the sort of enlivened publicly minded religion that you're referencing all have at their base a kind of impetus to affect some sort of change or move some kind of dial in the public sphere. We felt so disconnected from whatever that sphere is that there was even that impulse was did not exist. We were there to put food on our own table and if our neighbors needed help we helped them and it was incredibly to use media language hyper local way to live. <laughs> um, <laughs> And it was beautiful in a lot of ways, you know, I mean, I, but um, there, I would say that what you're asking, the answer is avoid. Wow. It was just alien yeah. in some sense. Yeah. Huh. Uh, I'm going to open up to questions from the audience in a minute, but I want to, um, I want to just read to you the first line of an essay that Sarah wrote on uh, teeth. I am bone of the bone of them that live in trailer homes. I grew up next to Tiffany Pensatucky Doggett, the hostile former drug addict from the prison TV drama Orange is the New Black. I know her by her teeth. So t t tell us a little bit about, about that essay about teeth and what that, what that says about your own journey from from, you know, you almost you talk about having a dual passport. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that essay, and that's really probably the first time I very directly and in a personal way wrote about class. I've been caring about those issues. for I've been a journalist for about 15 years and have always find myself writing about things in that vein. But that essay was the first time I really um, integrated my personal story with my um, awareness as a reporter and researcher. And um, and so I kind of found the answer to your question in, in the process of writing it, which is, um, you know, there, there just, there aren't very many people who are from where I'm from that end up in a, in a place where they get to be heard. And so, and um, when I say I know her by her teeth, um, uh, that's really a reference to um, how aware I am of how, how different pe human bodies look physically. So class is this sort of 
potentially amorphous idea and it's this kind of conceptual thing that's like not um, necessarily physically manifest as other um, forms of otherness in this country are um, but uh, but but and yet it for me I know it as a physical thing so the people I grew up with look you know my, my dad's hands are just like permanently thickened and bruised and scarred by being a, for being a construction worker for 40 years. Um, most of the farming community I grew up with have hunks of their faces missing where um, skin cancer was cut out because, and and um, and the teeth reference, of course, the meth epidemic was a little bit after I left for college in the late 90s. Um, and so pills and meth and those sorts of things that are leaving creases in people's faces and burning out their teeth are um, a little bit after my tenure as living on the ground there but those are still that's still my family and my community and I'm there and I see them um, and and so for me knowing that um, seeing now so I left for college as I said in the late 90s and and my life has very much been about a sort of you know you could look at it as a kind of class climb or ascension um, it doesn't f feel that way to me, but that might be how people see me. And part of that is, is my appearance. If I had ended up as a pregnant, pregnant teenager like my mother was, um, if I had ended up being a, as some of my cousins are either in the military or they've been managers at Target for 15 years or, um, and they, they don't have, um, they can't afford as um, clean a food as I eat. Um, their lives and jobs are much more physically taxing and so when I go home I our bodies look different and that's um, so that's what I was writing about there how does it how does it you know and you're writing it's so uh, you you bring your own personal experience to it with intensity but uh, I'd say you know absent a kind of voyeurism or sensationalism it's very real and you give it real, like historical and uh, and political and policy context, and I just wonder, how, like, how you, that seems like a really hard thing to do, and and in a in a media environment that kind of rewards sensationalism and seeks uh, seeks kind of easy direct answers, how do you go about your work? That's a totally unfair question, but I'm asking it anyway. <laughs> uh, well, I know that from. Um you know, if we think of the essay, I started out as a daily news reporter. I was actually the the last, um, I went to the University of Kansas's J School, and I actually have a historically very fine program there. Um, I was the last class at KU to have a kind of like old-fashioned, hard-ass newspaper training uh, before it shifted to like a media convergence curriculum. And um, so there were gains and losses in that. But I think among the gains are that I, I actually, I, um, I hold the, the word in high esteem and there, that's really where my expertise lies. I also have a kind of artsy fartsy side where I want to, I ended up as a, as, an, as a professor in an English department as opposed to in a journalism school for about five years. And I think because ultimately I'm, it, my interest in, in a news story is less about the information and data that it can convey 
than it is in the human connections <coughs> that can be made, understanding. So I would end up, even though I was a hard news reporter, quote unquote, starting out, I would end up as I would end up writing features and asking my editor to do the piece where I got to hang out with someone for a week or whatever, and those sorts of gigs are harder to come by. Um, but so I found my way to the essay as someone wanting to integrate those two things into a sort of what we now call long form. And um, so on the personal side, my how I come to it often is like, if it's going to be worth writing about, then it will be something where I'm revealing something that makes me want to throw up to think about someone reading it. <laughs> and inevitably, um, that's how I feel the night before something is published that's about my family, people I love, and very vulnerable parts of my life. Um, but then that is, I think, and I hope, fortified by um, also a reverence for fact. You know, I can tell you about my subjective experience of the issues, and I think there's a real, there's an expertise in that. Um, but um, but I also believe in facts, and um, and to so my goal is always to kind of merge. To see, I think that we get into trouble um, with with sensationalism and um, voyeurism when we say I'm going to I'm going to look in this person's life for for an example of X, or I'm going to look for a way in which this human being's infinitely complex existence can fit into this story I'd like to tell. Um, and I kind of come at it from the opposite direction. So I, I f f feel the issue arising within the personal experience and then move toward the research and the data. So that's sort of like the opposite direction for the foundation of the story. And I think that it um, inevitably honors the people involved more. Fantastic. Okay, questions from the room. Just introduce yourself, please. Hi, Jeff and Gibb. I'm an MPA student here. Um, when you think about kind of the narrative of the pain that a lot of people in, like I'm from Bug Scuffle, Texas, middle of nowhere. Uh, our communities are really hurting, and you've got opioid addictions, you've got middle-aged mortality, you've got people who are really kind of economically distressed. Do you see any policymakers that kind of understand the narrative that you're saying today and that are able to kind of embrace that and think of really good strategies for helping these areas? Well, first I'll confess I was a big, um, they'll just put my cards on the table, I, I was a big supporter of the Sanders campaign and I do, while I think that um, he and that team didn't get it perfectly right in a lot of ways um, in terms of um, liberalism and um, Kind of integrating all of these is issues, I think that I think that that wing of the party, there are people that really get it, um, and I think that where we get into trouble is that he and his camp didn't make as good enough case, I don't think, for for my worldview, which is that economics and big money and politics are foundational to, you know, you can't address all of the social issues without looking at that simultaneously. And they also had a more neoliberal faction of the party that is almost separating these things out as though they're somehow oppositional. The, you know, there's this term now being thrown around identity politics or features of, that are, that are, that are feel, feel more comfortable maybe and safer to a form of liberalism that is removed from very, from isolating economics as a topic. 
um, where for me, they're not only are they intersectional, they're one. They're, I mean, the conversation should and must happen simultaneously. So, so, so I don't think anybody is necessarily. We're so new to this as a, as the country, not experientially, but <coughs> folks that make the policies that are being forced to have a reckoning because of the 2016 election. We don't have the language yet to to quite do it, but I do think that there are people who who get it, and I feel encouraged that even though we're in a perilous moment, that um, we're headed in the right direction and being able to, you know, we're, we're not going to just like racism in any issue you can't make progress until you even have a, a, a language to identify it and discuss it and um, so and just this morning you know we, we would think of this as a pretty rarefied space and I, I talk to every person maybe it's just self-selecting the people that decided to talk to me but I but the but everyone I talked to I felt like this is somebody that gets it there is a more there are there is a, a nuance of truth in which um, communities like yours in Texas exist, and they, they are not in competition with um, and should never be framed as such um, with uh, any other disenfranchised group. I think that's the linchpin. For us? Yeah, um, so, yeah, Farai Chidea, Shorenstein Fellow, and I got to speak to you a little bit earlier today. After we spoke, I spoke with someone who's going to interview me about uh, the future of automation and jobs. Mm. And we spoke a little bit about what the two political parties do or don't offer working class people regardless of race. I'm just concerned that automation is going to eliminate jobs across the board for so many Americans mm. that it will become a bit of a Mad Max Thunderdome situation mm. <laughs> for everyone. I don't know. I, sometimes I'm more hopeful than others. But what do you see ahead, and how do you think it's going to affect your, your home community and communities like yours? Yeah. Well, I think that... Um you know, there there are some skills, of course, that are just, and, and my family's involved in some of them, that even at the working class level will always require human hands. But by and large, you know, like my cousin that's been a, a target manager for a decade, um, the target needs fewer people at the checkout line because now they have the self-checkout. And um, the in farming, which has become even, it was already industrialized by the time I was coming of age in the Reagan era, but it's even more so now with even more efficient equipment. And, you know, you could theoretically have, uh, and it already exists, a, a combine in a wheat field that is operated by satellite um, moving through harvesting the wheat that makes the bread that ends up in Boston. And, um, and that means that, um, that farmers and where, where I'm from are out of work. So my hope, you know, I see a, um, I agree with you that things will probably get uglier before they get better, unfortunately, in that context. And, that, and it does seem inevitable that we're heading in that direction, um, a loss of jobs um, begotten by technology. But my hope is that that will force this country to become a place where we're not all identified, you know, if, if we decide as liberals and progressives that we're going to put our money where our mouth is as, as caring about this, uh, uh, this uh, idea of community and somehow are able to um, uh, make that happen on the ground at the policy level, then maybe that's going to be a space for making a case to the American people that um, 
something like a basic income or um, a, a, a way of life in America that is that is not <coughs> where, where your 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 first definition your first question isn't what you what do you do and your first definition isn't your job title and your first defining experience of your life isn't that you're um, a worker um, maybe that will create a space where there are all these human beings with inevitable you know with with creative potential and intellectual potential and and labor potential and all of those things um, to be supported by our society in a way that they could be um, um, fulfilling themselves and contributing to community in a way that isn't um, on a factory assembly line. So, you know, that's uh, a really optimistic view that that space will create um, what I would feel like is a, a real progressive momentum. Um, but on face value, it looks much bleaker than that. Um, so we'll see. Hi, Todd Baker, um, a senior fellow at the Center for Business and Government here. Um, question I have for you is, you know, when you look at the election results, one of the biggest correlations was uh, urban to, to rural through suburban in terms of what the vote, what the vote went in. Mm -hmm. Yet there are enormous numbers of working class, low income, working families in suburban world and in, certainly in the urban world. Yeah. How do you think of class as associated with urban and versus rural? Urban rural. Thanks for asking that. I, one of it's um, hard for me to read the narratives about and just to see among even you know friends of mine a, a kind of settling into a, using ur urban and rural as a shorthand for all sorts of things that those words do not necessarily represent. Um, as far as how it shows up on the political map um, and election results, you know, since I have lived in those rural, well, I, I should stop myself and say I would be now a hypocrite of everything I just said if I claim that I can speak for all of Red America. And so I'm not going to do that, but I can tell you that where, I, where I'm from in rural Kansas, um, just most people don't vote. And so I think that they show up as red because there are, hand, there are extremist factions that have taken hold in this country that have a lot to do with money from people like the Koch brothers that are from my home district, the 4th Congressional in Kansas, um, that have gotten a particular extreme presence within those communities to the polls, often um, leveraging hot-button issues like abortion. Um, that I think the the urban and rural, just like the red and blue thing, is is more a feature of who who is showing up and for what reason than it is actually a reflection of the political texture of the place. If that makes sense. Okay, I, I have a couple questions. Um, you do you do you think there is a shared American experience? I mean, is there a is there a public in America? Because listening to you talk about both your sense of having, uh, being an ambassador between two rural worlds in a sense, and even the answer you just gave about kind of the rural versus urban-suburban, and um, and also about the the sense that in your family there, there, there wasn't a political consciousness because that was what other people who had could afford to do that did yes w what is uh w where do we where do we have shared experience as americans and 
is it just a wholly separate world? Mm. Well, uh, I, and I'm going to add just that you, one of the things mm-hmm. that I can't remember which of your things said this, but you talked about that uh, the television show Roseanne was the only time you ever felt like mm-hmm. you saw an authentic experience of your family's life on television. Yeah, and that actually remains true. I still haven't. I think that she was like an undersung genius. And, of course, that was a big hit. And so um, she wasn't undersung in ratings. But in terms of like a critical regard for her, I I think she's like one of the great genius writers about class in my lifetime. Um, But uh, as far as... um, the shared space and the idea of the the the, the public in, in America, it would be tempting, of course, for us to say, well, now we have the internet, but we all know and we learned in brutal terms last year that we, we have already kind of siloed ourselves apart in that space. Um, so we might look at um, the digital era as an opportunity for a kind of public domain that bridges the sort of gaps that we're talking about today, but we certainly haven't harnessed it to that effect yet. Um, so where does you know i think the i think that the maybe the heart of all the challenges that we're discussing right now and the um, dangerous assumptions that end up getting made about people politically and based on their place and their class and all and all manner of things um are is that maybe the the only in a in in a such an a historically Inequal society and where equity and equality and the concepts that we supposedly hold dear in this country um, are not being um, realized, and we're all in such different spaces and quote unquote bubbles. The only place that the public exists at this moment is when we sit down in the same room and share a space and have conversations. That's a that's a that's a form of the public that can never be um, reduced to a statistic or dismantled by Breitbart or um, uh, misconstrued by a red blue map. It's it's um, so you know my I just I don't think that we're gonna get the only way I think that we're gonna get through this perilous moment in the country in terms of disconnect if our goal is to reunite is going to be to maybe paradoxically get out from behind the screens where our internet is and somehow find ways to engage each other in the flesh. So I want to get into this a little more and think about class and Donald Trump, right? I mean, there's Trump is, uh, was born wealthy has a huge amount of wealth himself and his family, and yet uh, clearly identifies with lower class voters in some sense. Mm-hmm. And I wondered what you make of this strange paradox mm-hmm. that here is a man of enormous wealth who is perceived broadly as low class, mm-hmm. and uh, and yet and, and was in many ways elected with people with whom he has very little in common, and um, and appears to be pursuing policies that would enrich his family and his and and, and the ultra wealthy, mm-hmm. and so what is that 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 class dynamic at work in his appeal mm-hmm. uh, isn't about money really, mm-hmm. and so what is that about? Yeah, 
Well, first I would say, you know, when we look at the working class as a um, Trump's base, really the, the reason, the only reason that that would make sense is because that piece of the voting demographic swung. They didn't vote for him at any higher rate than middle or upper class voters, white specifically voters did, but, but they, they did move from, even like union party folks mm -hmm. moved from blue to red. And so, um, so, so the question isn't how did he turn out so many more of them than everybody else, but how did he so paradoxically and ironically even speak to economically disenfranchised people as a billionaire. Well, suppose a billionaire, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I can tell you that my, um, you know, my grandma would take a drag off of a cheap cigarette in a trailer and say, I've got more clash in my middle finger than uh, Donald Trump. And that's a Grandma Bettyism. Um, and um, almost assuredly true. And it's absolutely I can I can vouch. And um, and so I think that um, this, you know, the he my understanding in one world I inhabit is that he among um, the land of the wealthy re represents a sort of garish 80s moment of like um, excess and gold-plated this and that and I um, and so there's that within that class this sort of I think oh, and I've read several pieces where he's profiled as a sort of you know someone who wants the approval of um, or kind of uh, to, to quote Donald Trump the dollar's very strong mostly because people believe in me uh. it's like, <laughs> Yes. Yeah. I don't have to explain his um, his clearly flailing ego to anybody in this room, I know. Um, but I think that his, you know, something that uh, I'm, by the way, you know, so I think some people read my stuff and they think, oh, well, now I feel some empathy for uh, for working class white people. And then therefore, Sarah is some sort of like Trump voter apologist. I hold the I hold the white working class Trump voter to um, a higher degree of scrutiny than maybe anyone, and with uh, authority and ownership to do so. I make because no, to, to me, you know, I think to myself, I can and you know, my mostly female family members who didn't vote for him, I think, would say the same thing. Like I have the same potential grievances and rights to complain, and I I didn't I didn't go so among in our conversations what we see in Trump is a whiner and he is sees himself as a victim and so for some for people who are economically struggling who are unfortunately have a a, a sense of fear and distress and victimhood inside of them that's an incredibly easy thing for someone like him who also in a in a, in a parallel way I think has a, a bit of a victim complex um, can uh, whether it's with the media or whoever, um, he that's the space that they share across class lines. It, uh, you know, I don't, I think that people cast that vote for myriad reasons. I don't want to say that that's yeah, true of every Trump. I was, you say across class lines, and yet it doesn't feel to me like it's across class lines. It may be across net worth or mm -hmm. taxable income lines mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah. But I don't. I guess I'm trying to understand mm -hmm. how you think about class in America. Mm -hmm. Well, for me, it absolutely does. You know, money is the is the first piece of it, um, but it is, of course, as you say, more complex than that. It's cultural and and also it's it's 
not static. I mean, in this country, um, downward mobility since 2008 is a big thing. I think the reason that some people respond also respond to my essays is because they're they're now middle class people who who's who they read my story and see their dad in my story like their dad did maybe what I had the fortune of doing in terms of professional outcomes in comparison to where I'm from um, so we just don't have the the right language for it yet but for me I cannot set to me someone with Trump's level of wealth you, there is there is a a backbone to class that is that is absolutely about net net worth um because that has to do you know there's the financial capital but also the social capital that comes with that and his connections um i mean you know he he has uh friends in all sorts of places including among the most elite um wealthy classes in this country so what, what about um you uh you left kansas you went to columbia for graduate school mm -hmm. you know like ivy league ivy league manhattan and uh and yet you returned to rural kansas why mm. um well there are a handful I mean, it's of your reasons home, sure it's my home um but that is a little bit against the you know the narrative of rural flight is a term for um the kind of depopulation of the places like where i'm from that's driven by economics, and that's been going on for a hundred years. That's a, a um, post, like an industrial revolution uh, function of jobs becoming the city and and people going where those opportunities exist. So that's not a new thing. Um, but I happened to be a kid at the moment when it reached its kind of breaking point, and when Farm Aid came out in the '80s, and the people realized the. The, the idea of the, the dying family farm really came to a head when I was a kid and I watched it. And I watched the small town storefronts close up. Um, and, and simultaneously, I, you know, I guess I didn't realize it at the time, but that was a heartbreaking way to live because um, that happens to be the place I feel best. I like being rural, I like being in the country and I, and I love my home. Um, and so I guess when when I went back, it probably initially was had more to do with personal reasons, but then now pol uh, politically and professionally, I f I sense it, and I think now we can all maybe reckon with this as a country as a truth that there is something there is a, a civic responsibility about where you decide to put your body in this country. And, um, and whether that means that you are, you know, you identify as a liberal person and so you want to be in a city, fair enough. For me, um, knowing myself now to be a political outlier in a place that I'm watching being eaten alive by big money interests and forces against which my native home community have no chance, um, and I am somebody that might have a shot at getting heard I want to I don't want to be somewhere where I'm talking about them in the past tense I want to be there and speaking among them um, and and also to you know if hope, hopefully something I like telling people in this kind of moment of the resistance movement and that kind of vernacular has come up I like to say 
I know um, that people in places like Kansas were resisting before resisting was cool. Um, and, you know, I grew, I, in my 20s, I was a development director for social service agencies. I've been a, can a professor at a state university in Kansas. Um, and those are particular bubbles within the state context. But, you know, I know there's a woman in Salina, Kansas, who runs a small town art gallery. And she, she is talented and brilliant and formally educated and she could go somewhere else if she wanted but to her it's important that art exists there and so when Brownback made Kansas the first state to not have a state-funded arts commission when he came into office in 2010 she lost funding instead of closing her gallery she um, uh, canceled her custodial services out of her business budget and scrubbed the toilets herself so to me that those are my heroes is people who hold progressive ideals and are have and there's no glamour in it I can tell you and very little attention if any have put their feet down in those places and said I I am not moving and I'm going to fight for vulnerable communities here with whatever power I have um, and for the children whose food is um, on the line and health um, so that's how I feel about being in Kansas is that um, I can do the most, the most, um, the most good there maybe. Wow. Uh, I have a final question before I wrap up, which is um, in this, in this kind of media landscape where you're, I have the overwhelming sense from reading your work and listening today that you're you're like watching a dramatic mischaracterization of your world emerge on really a global scale thanks to the media and that has that's a myth-making enterprise that has far-reaching consequences yes and what uh, wh what do you read what do you look for how do you how do you find hope and puncture that in your own that, that could be a daunting experience. I appreciate you saying that because it is, um, it's, yeah, it's been a, a painful experience to watch because not only, and as a member of the much maligned media, you know, so it, it's on so many levels for, that for me it's like an internal um, just kind of um, explosion of, uh, issues coming to a head. Um, I guess, you know, I, I just very recently had a kind of reckoning of realizing like that the force of that narrative is likely, very likely, almost assuredly so powerful that it, it will envelop this country for the course of my lifetime. I'm not, my little essays are not going, I'm not going to see a world where all of a sudden on NBC someone talks about the people that I'm re potentially represent as with any kind of nuance. Um, or and respect. Yes, that's right. Um, so I have just, I just very recently kind of came to that reckoning because you have to be just nuts enough to think you can change something to do what we do, <laughs> right? Um, that said, um, I, I do think that, you know, in the, in the long term that these kind of like the little seeds of like this conversation is happening right now and then some of you might end up at a family dinner 
sharing something I said and maybe somebody will look at something in a different way, that's, that isn't nothing. And I think that that's um, potentially even more powerful than, than what we experience in front of televisions. I mean, in some sense, it's everything, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, th Sarah, thank you so much for coming and joining us today. Thanks for listening to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. Music provided by ExtremeMusic.com. Music